Disclaimer. Any supposed facts or observations contained therein are attributed to the speaker and do not necessarily imply the endorsement of the podcasters or their affiliates. Does that sound right? That didn't sound like I said it right. Oh well, let's run with it. Cut. Hello out there in Radio Land, and welcome to One Track Mind Spooky Edition. The only commentary podcast that matters, because as far as I know, it's the only one that exists. My name is Ryan Luis Rodriguez, a born-again cinephile, and your host for this series where every week we're going to analyze film through the prism of audio commentaries. Features without the entire medium of podcasting would not exist. Directors writers, actors, and craftspeople analyzing their own films in front of a microphone set the stage for the current culture, and it's about damn time somebody showed the proper appreciation. If that sounds too stuffy, I promise there will be jokes. They won't be good jokes, but they will be jokes. Maybe not even with a punchline, but it'll, it'll be something. Something, I promise. This week, we're doing things a little differently. Usually we use audio commentaries as a way to unpack a film, but our discussion today will be unpacking the commentary itself. One of the cringiest things I've watched in excess of three times from the Arrow Video Blu-ray of the 1977 cult film, The Car. Director Elliot Silverstein, still kicking at age 96, is what they call a distinguished journeyman. Beginning in the early 1950s, he made a name for himself in television, helming everything from anthology science fiction like The Twilight Zone to episodic westerns like Have Gun, Will Travel. After directing a TV movie called Bell Summers in 1962, he makes his theatrical feature directorial debut with the comedic western Cat Ballou in 1965, for which he gets nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Motion Pictures from the Directors Guild of America. It's a good movie, you should watch it. He follows up Cat Ballou with 1967's The Happening, which, as far as I can tell, is about the counterculture and not plants rising up and killing humans. I have yet to confirm this detail. In 1970, he had his biggest worldwide commercial success with A Man Called Horse, about a man who becomes fused to a horse in a grisly teleportation experiment. I think. I really have to start doing better research. In 1974, he directed a crime thriller called Nightmare Honeymoon that I don't have a joke for, even though comedy comes in threes. In 1975, something huge happened that would have an effect on Silverstein's career, even if he technically had nothing to do with it. Steven Spielberg's Jaws breaks box office records, and ushers in a wave of imitators trying to capitalize on the, quote, destructive force unleashed upon ordinary citizens, unquote, narrative. Piranha, arguably the best of the ripoffs, at least according to Spielberg, Grizzly, about a giant shark so fuzzy he looks like a bear, Alligator, about a giant crocodile, I think, and an Elliot Silverstein film from 1977, arguably the most interesting of all the ripoffs, and his last theatrical feature for 17 years, The Car. 
evil has visited the earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. There was no driver in the car. A car possessed. I know why he didn't go into the cemetery. The ground was hallowed. Who knows what it wants? Nothing can stop the car. This is Wade! We can't let him through no matter what! There's nowhere to turn. The car, he's in here! Nowhere to hide. No way to stop the car. I, I think I hear the engine of that car. It's around here somewhere. Wait, I'm scared. No, I promise you I won't go out. Tell me what to do, baby. I what evil force drives the car? If you ever wonder just how big Jaws was, allow me to put it in perspective. Two years in a row, the film's own distributor, Universal Pictures, got in on the derivative action. They combined the bones of Jaws nefarious creature with a mind of its own, slowly picking off citizens for mysterious reasons, with Steven Spielberg's directorial debut, Duel, Monster Semi Stalks Hapless Everyman, to create something both ludicrous and intensely watchable. A cult film if there ever was one. About a sentient black 1971 Lincoln Continental Mark III that stalks the denizens of a tiny desert town. A car that cannot be destroyed or outsmarted. A car that may be an instrument of the devil, at least if an opening quote from Church of Satan founder Anton LaVey is any indication. It's a movie with a real aptitude for crashes and set pieces, and a story that can be interpreted as either allegorical or just plain batshit crazy, which is arguably the best kind of movie. In June of 2013, Boutique label Aero Video, the cult criterion collection of the United Kingdom, releases their special edition of the film with an audio commentary featuring 86-year-old Elliot Silverstein and critic and Aero Supplements producer Callum Waddle, and it's one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever watched. Like, the end of Requiem for a Dream has nothing on this commentary. It's a masterclass in asking leading questions poorly and being greeted with disinterest or hostility, not knowing when to cut your losses and bail. I've had less awkward conversations with family members I deliberately avoid. Waterboarding interrogations are less messy. It's a case of someone, in this case Callum Waddle, trying to flex their comprehensive knowledge of cinema in front of someone else, Elliot Silverstein, who doesn't care and wants to go home. I like to call this track, Get Off My Lawn, or No Bad Question Goes Unavoided. This this was not your first horror film, was it? You did do a horror film, The Honeyman, Honeyman Murders? No, but I think people may consider some other films I've done as horror films, although I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Can you name some names? No, I'd rather not do that. <laughs> You're very modest. The track was probably doomed from the beginning, as over the course of 90 or so minutes, Silverstein makes it very plain 
that he doesn't see the car as a cult movie, yet he's being interviewed by someone who only sees it that way. In the modern parlance, B-movie typically refers to genre movies, but Silverstein is part of the old school, having been making pictures in the time of double features, where B-movie meant the cheaper second bill for exploitation distributors. On this track, he and Waddle argue over the description. I was, I was, I, I, I was, go I was going to comment that um, at the beginning of this commentary, you know, I, I mentioned that, uh, you know, this might be seen as a B movie, but of course it was a big studio film. Um, do, do you see any, um, you know, any kind of mixture in that? That you know, do you think that a big studio film can also be a B movie? Do you think there's a B movie element in this? I don't know what that means. Well, you know, B movie is uh, a, a B movie would be something. You're talking about budget. No, 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 no. I mean, a B-movie would be something like the old science fiction films, you know, like Invasion of the... Maybe not so much Invasion of Body Spatters, but, well, you, know, you know, the creature features and the the, the crazy stuff that came out, you well, know, Night of the Living... Uh, before Night of the Living Dead. You're you know, more of a student of films than I am, so yes, you're sure. probably better able to make that decision. Okay. According to Silverstein, when he was assigned the film, he was given a very specific mandate from Universal. Or was he? You, you touched on this a little bit. It's an interesting location to set a horror film because, you know, I've, I've read some reviews of the car, uh, you know, to research this commentary, and, and some people have questioned why a satanic car would choose a little American desert town to, you know, extol its vengeance. Yes, well, as I explained, that was one of the requirements, uh, the basic requirements from the company, Jaws on Land. Jaws on land, sure, sure. But wait, let's go to the videotape and rewind the tape to five minutes earlier. I, I, I was saying that this is a, a bit like Jaws. Um, you know, Jaws opens with young people obviously being killed by the shark. I mean, was this... No, it was not conscious. It wasn't conscious? No, not, not in my mind, no. Now... Maybe in his advanced age, Silverstein is simply prone to brain farts, or he's just putting up a front and being deliberately combative. I'm not sure. All I know is that after he retired from film and television, he became a teacher at the University of Southern California. And I can only imagine that A, his lectures must have been very contentious, and B, he failed anyone who challenged his authority. If that makes it seem like I'm making Mr. Silverstein out to be the villain of this piece, then perhaps I'm doing this wrong, because Callum Waddle gives as good as he doesn't get. When he's not asking leading questions that seem to be goading Silverstein into issuing the occasional hot take, he asks questions that are absolutely baffling, like this one on star James Brolin's era-appropriate facial hair. If you made this film again, would you get rid of James Brolin's moustache? Why do you ask a question like that? Just because uh, it's uh, a very 70s moustache. I don't know if um, you could have a moustache like that on screen today. If he wanted it? You would allow him to have it? Probably, unless it was a, did violence to the character. It's perhaps the one response to any given question where I'm completely on board with Silverstein. Why do you ask a question like that? Trying to fill time? Trying to piss off your subject? Being uncomfortable in the situation and deciding to liven up the proceedings with a ridiculous non sequitur? We may never know. 
just like getting to the center of a Tootsie Pop, which you think they would have solved by now, but they haven't. The subject of Silverstein's previous films also comes up, however fashioned out of another Waddle's genre expertise, Flex. I have no idea what response he expected to get from the following question, or even if it's a question at all and not a statement. It's all very murky at this point. Take it away, Callum. You know, um, a man called Horse, this is the first time you'll probably ever have heard this, but you know how you string Richard Harris up with hooks in yes. a man called Horse? Yes. Well, an Italian director called Umberto Lenzi uh, made a film uh, set in the Amazons um, called Cannibal Ferox. You don't need to remember the title. Uh, but um, in that film, he copied a man called Horse by hanging a woman up with hooks through her, her breasts. Oof. So <laughs> I just wanted to tell you that. Oh, well, this was, that was not an invention of mine. That was actually practice of the Mandan Indians of the Midwest and the paintings of that ceremony made by a French trapper are in the Library of Congress with letters of testimony from people who witnessed it. Mm -hmm. And so we tried to duplicate that. That was, and it was an understated the way we did it. We yeah, understated it. Very it. Much, yeah. Sometime back in 2020, when David Fincher's Mank was about to be released, Vulture did an interview with the director who said, quote, Pauline Kael knew a lot about watching movies. What Pauline Kael didn't know about making movies could fill volumes, unquote. This commentary strikes me as the collision between a cinema bro, somebody who watches a lot of movies and maybe reads too much into them without much knowledge of how exactly the sausage is made, going up against the old guard, a generation that doesn't have much appreciation and esteem for the new school. Occasionally, Waddle will ask a question, thinking that the response will turn the whole commentary around into something productive and less fraught, only to get a very clipped, direct answer, then decide that it was not the desired result, so he has to get a word in edgewise. It's a puzzling strategy, not unlike playing three-dimensional chess and smashing the bottom board when you've been checkmated. Can you talk about the car um, that went over the cliff there, just blowing up as it went over the cliff? Is that a hard stunt to, to achieve? Yeah, push the car over the cliff and, and they, just blow up. call the powder man has a switch and it sets off an explosion in the car. You, 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 you make filmmaking sound incredibly boring. Sometimes Silverstein will just stonewall Waddle entirely, the contempt oozing from every pore. I fully expect his responses to be, I just make movies, kid. I don't question the script. I don't do metaphors. I shoot what they give me and I move on. I haven't thought about this picture in decades and I refuse to think about it now. In fact, that might actually be a quote from this commentary. I don't remember. Because this, now this was not a financial success when it came out, was it? I don't know. I don't have access to the reports, although I understood that Europe paid more attention to it than this country. Mm -hmm. They saw some kind of a metaphor in a huge car uh, that uh, created destruction in the world. I don't have access to the reports. Dude didn't make another feature for 17 years. It clearly wasn't a runaway smash. This degree of evasion is almost unprecedented, to the point that I don't know how Silverstein was convinced to actually record the commentary in the first place. He clearly has no interest in being engaging for the listener, nor is he interested in actually explaining things. He strikes me as one of those cinema speaks for itself guys, who does the job and moves on to the next thing. 
a guy who directs not because of some sense of passion for the medium, but because it's a thing to do, which is not a criticism. A job is a job is a job. If you've worked as often as Elliot Silverstein, going from set to set and moving on, it's like going to Oz already knowing who the man behind the curtain is. There is no more mystery, it's a gig. Can you talk about this chase scene? Can you talk about filming? What is there to talk about, except the, the two stuntmen were very courageous. Imagine driving that close, that fast, in case something should happen, somebody could get hurt. Well, Edward Creech was the motorcyclist. Well, there you go, it sounds like there's plenty to talk about. If you're recording an audio commentary and someone on that commentary asks, what is there to talk about? Say your goodbyes and thank yous, shut the microphones off, and go home. Ugh, this commentary gives me acid reflux. One man fighting for dear life not to answer questions, the other determined to ask them in the worst possible way. Sometimes they're not even questions. They're just statements of fact that baffle just as much as anything he actually asks. I was going to say, um, Utah, uh, also famous for its Mormons and Salt Lake City, so Ma many things to see. Or the questions are so overly convoluted, borderline incoherent, to the point that it's unclear what the actual question is. This strange melding of anecdote and inquiry, catechism and impression. And Silverstein will flat out say that he's confused, to which Waddle will laugh in effort to defuse the tension, all to no avail. If it was if it was an important moment, you know, you had to establish, like the bit we saw with the two people getting killed by the car, you know, did you, did you have to spend a lot of time to make that right because of the challenges of filming the car and filming the stunt? Well, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Could you simplify that question for me? I'll, I'll try my best. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Part of the big problem is that Waddle doesn't leave a lot of room for Silverstein to elaborate or expound upon. Everything is pretty much a yes or no question, but each question is skewed to the point that I understand why Silverstein would be so evasive. There's no wiggle room. It's like somebody going on and on about the crisis in Darfur and following it up with, now is this a bad situation or a really bad situation? It gets worse when he gets combative and confrontational, which happens occasionally, and it reminds me of Donald Trump's Axios interview, where somebody really doesn't want to be there, the orange guy naturally, and the other is determined to hold his feet to the fire, only he doesn't have a fire, just a Zippo lighter, looking to foster debate or discussion, but lacking the ability to read the room. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, is that fair to say that this is this is the most major scene in the film? This is when we really get the crux of what's happening? Well, if you think a lot of people makes a major scene, I suppose you're right. I'm not sure if that was a yes or no answer, <laughs> but... Uh, well, I'm, because I can hear you say it is what it is. Yeah, I know, but, you know, I mean, I mean, when we're, you know, when, when we're doing an audio commentary, there has to be, a, you know, a degree of explanation to the people listening to it. Because, you know, people listening to a commentary will want answers for... You know, right. why things were so, made and why things were done. The specific question is... Oh my god, oy vey, oof, oof, oof. That's all for the car, vroom vroom. Before we wrap up though, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's recommendations. This week's picks all focus on cars in their own way. Good cars, bad cars, cars possessed by, I guess, the devil? 
In the previous incarnation of this podcast, The Coolness Chronicles, I did an episode on Roger Corman toward the end of the show's first year, and I'm still making amends for some of the thoughts that I delivered. I think I went so hard against Corman that I was closing myself off to some of his more notable work, primarily Battle Beyond the Stars, which will be a recommendation soon in a couple months, and Slumber Party Massacre, both films I enjoyed in the years that followed, and really, I can't believe that I got it wrong to begin with. For this week's first recommendation, I wisely left it out of the original episode because even then I had significant esteem for it, and that's 1975's Death Race 2000. Directed by longtime Corman cohort Paul Bartell, who also directed another film I'm fond of, 1982's Eating Raoul, the picture focuses on the transcontinental road race, a race on the road that covers the transcontinental United States, a United States in the dystopian year of 2000 and zero. If you're looking for down-and-dirty, low-budget genre thrills and some genuinely awesome world-building, hop in your car and zoom to the future. I'm so glad I don't have to look back and feel bad that I was too mean to this film. Because I wasn't. Next up, a car named Eleanor who just won't quit in 1974's Gone in 60 Seconds, directed by H.B. Halicki. Don't hear that title and think, the one with Nicolas Cage? Because to paraphrase one of the lead characters in Death Proof, this is no Angelina Jolie bullshit. Yes, this is technically about car thieves having to steal 48 cars in a tight time span, but unlike the latter film and its computer-generated flourishes, this movie is all about real cars getting real smashed. And Halicki even pilots the aforementioned Eleanor, a yellow 1973 Ford Mustang, for a chase sequence with the police that may stand as the single most sustained sequence of its kind especially admirable for doing so with such a strap budget. It goes on for something like 35 to 40 minutes and stands as a testament to what the right person can do cinematically if they believe in their vision hard enough and know that there are only two ways for it to go, success or failure. And God in 60 Seconds is indeed successful. And finally, I was reticent to use the next recommendation, seeing as how I'll be covering the director extensively in the months to come, and recommending practically everything the man made from the 70s through the late 80s, but what the hell. We're talking cars, and there is no car more diabolical, more evil, than 1983's Christine. The film stands as a testament to the potent source material from author Stephen King, and proof that in 1983, John Carpenter was truly in his element. Though I wouldn't necessarily call the movie scary, considering that I'm no longer a teenager and no longer the same kind of puss I once was, still a puss, just not the same kind, it's a genuinely suspenseful and beautifully shot little marvel built on a sturdy chassis. That's a car term, right? I honestly, I've, I've no idea. Death Race 2000 is available on Blu-ray from Shout Factory as part of the Roger Corman's Cult Classics banner. Gone in 60 Seconds is available on Blu-ray from Mill Creek Entertainment. And Christine is available on 4K, where it looks beautiful, from Sony Home Entertainment. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com slash one-track-mind. That will have to do it for this week. Is there anything I overlooked? Reach out to me at OneTrackMindPod on Twitter, 
one that's the numeral one track mind podcast on instagram on podchaser or send an email to one track mind podcast at gmail.com if you enjoy what you hear please rate and review the show on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify or the source of your choice positive feedback helps keep the show alive and i want to keep making it until it just isn't fun anymore also check out the official Patreon page at patreon.com slash onetrackmind where you can get every episode early and exclusive bi-weekly bonus episodes. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for our podcast artwork, Bill Sherm for our original themes, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Catherine H., Ellen I., Kathleen D., Izzy T., Bobby L., Michael A., Ian C., Ian M, Kitty K, Kelly B, The Vern, Mary M, Jenny R, Bill M, Christopher H, Tracy R, and Christopher J. Thanks for listening, and until next time, you're going to cut that, right? Dawn, that's the end.